Well, these are unusual times, but it is good to uh, still be able to gather, in, at least in this sense. Please, I want you to thank the guys, the tech team, that are working really hard this week. So for Glenn and Brennan, they've been working all week, uh, just really serving um, so wonderfully well. There's a group of other people here that you can't see, but please, in your homes, thank them. I'm thanking them very loudly. Very appreciate all these guys that have been working really hard to make it work. Next week, we're going to have a new computer again, and so it's going to be even quicker for you. But man, these guys have been working so hard. Thank you for your prayers for us as a team. Um, you can keep praying for me by all means. I have allergies this time of year, which is a nightmare. My wife won't even go to the shops with me anymore. That's how bad it is, because as soon as I go to the shops, I sneeze, and everybody just goes, ah, and it's like, no, it's, it's allergies, you know, but please pray for me in that, that would be really good, and please pray for us as a team, there's a lot going on. Please know that we are praying for you, and we are spending time in prayer for each of you by name during this season, and please do let us know with things that are on your heart. It's hard to pray specifically when we don't know specifics, and so please share with us at prayer at sovgrace.org.au. And what's on your heart? What's going on in your life? So we, as we gather as a team, we can be praying for you by name. It is a thrill to bring God's word to you. And today, so turn, please turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 40. John Calvin once said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And that's so true. You know, this word is not just some old fusty book that gives us some history or indicates to us about what happened thousands of years ago. It's a book that's still alive today. It speaks to us. It has feet. It has hands. It, it runs after us and goes after us. And I believe that's what the Lord wants to do afresh this morning to us. He wants to go after us through his word. And so we're going to read Isaiah 40. We're going to read the first 11 verses. And this is the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her inequity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. 
He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray. Lord, your word is alive. Each and every word, each and every letter is ultimately breathed out by you, exhaled from your mouth. And so, Lord, as I preach this morning, I simply re-preach what you have already said. Lord, I pray that your word then would do the work. It would do what no preacher can. It would pierce hearts. It would pierce consciences. It would bring encouragement and comfort and correction and help and aid. Would your word do its wonderful and glorious work this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Job 5 verse 7 says, As surely as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. We saw that true last week for both believers and unbelievers alike. As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles do indeed fall. As James told us last week, it's not a matter of if we face trials. It's a matter of when we face trials of various kinds. And right now, sometimes even in the midst of other troubles and trials, we are all walking through this COVID-19 trial together, aren't we? Financial markets are struggling. They have been heavily disrupted. Shops and workplaces are beginning to close down. Many children and youth are now schooling from home. And our borders are completely and utterly closed. As surely as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. And this week I plan to take us back into the book of Exodus. We have two messages left through the book of Exodus. We plan to do one this week and one next week prior to Easter. And that was the plan up until Thursday lunchtime. As I was praying for you, praying for us as a church, and actually preparing the message through Exodus. I really felt the Lord put a vision in my mind and it was these words, Comfort, comfort my people. So I got out my Bible, knowing that that was from the Bible, and I turned to Isaiah 40, which is where those words come from, comfort, comfort my people. And I began to read through the chapter, and I just sensed the Lord say, speak that to them. Preach that to them. And as I examined this chapter, and as I studied it afresh, I could see why the Lord, I believe, laid it on my heart. Because the one thing we learn in this chapter is simply this. That whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, we have nothing to fear. Because He, the Great One, is always with us. As surely as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Things are going to happen in our lives. They're happening right now. But whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, We have nothing to fear. It's exactly what he goes on to say in chapter 41. Fear not. Whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, we have nothing to fear. Because he, the great one, is always with us. What profound great news for us. What profound great news it was for the original hearers as well. See, the original recipients of this prophecy from Isaiah were a small remnant of Israel, in particular a small remnant of Judah, who were right now, as they read this for themselves, living in chains in Babylon. You see, in 586 BC, 
The Babylonian army overwhelmed Jerusalem. And then they led a small remnant, the survivors that were left, a small remnant of Judah, off to captivity in Babylonia. And he did, they did so in chains. This small group from Judah were led away to Babylon, some 700 miles away from where they lived in Jerusalem. And as these exiles arrived and began to live in chains in Babylonia, they quite simply thought it was all over for them. They were convinced that surely now this was a sign that God had abandoned them. I mean, how could this be happening if God was still with them? And to be fair to them, they knew that God had warned them this would happen to them if they did not repent of their sin. See, very specifically for them, this particular trial is because of particular sin. And in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, God tells them, if you don't turn from your sin, then this will happen. Well, they didn't. And so as they sit gathered by the rivers of Babylon in chains, they are dismayed, they are disillusioned, they are downcast. For in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised that he would make Israel into a great nation. A nation that would number more than the stars of heaven. A nation through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But surely there had been a change of plan. Surely they'd blown it. Surely they'd messed up. So they sit in chains in Babylon, defeated, disillusioned and downcast. But then chapter 40 comes. And a merciful and gracious and kind father says, Comfort Comfort my people. Why? Well, because quite frankly, he hadn't abandoned them at all. God, full of mercy and grace, these people are still his chosen people. They are still his sons and daughters. They are still his, still his treasured possession, a royal priesthood. And so he wants to gather around them afresh in chapter 40. He wants to run towards them afresh because they are his chosen people. And he wants to run towards them to tell them, comfort, comfort my people. I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm slow to anger and abounding in mercy and grace. And so he runs towards them afresh in this chapter to bring them comfort and indeed then hope For the road ahead. And so he tells them, Judah, I'm still going to send you a king. Judah, the plan is still the same plan. I am going to make this remnant into a great nation. I am, by the grace of God himself, going to make you into a royal priesthood, of which will bring a blessing to the entire world. I'm still going to send you and through you a king. He says in verse 10 that this king will be an all-conquering king. Nothing will be able to stand in the way of this coming king. He will be a generous benefactor. And then in verse 11, he tells us that this king will be a gentle shepherd. One who will tend to his flock like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms, carrying them in his bosom, and gently leading those with young Judah, I haven't left you. I'm still going to send you a king. And then he goes on to tell them, even in the interim, as they await the arrival of that king, he tells them that I will be with you. 
See, the Lord is very aware of what Judah is going through in this moment. He's very intimately aware of what they're struggling with. He knows what's on their heart. He knows what's in their minds. That's why he says in verse 30, For even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. He knows. He knows what's on their hearts. But in the midst of all that, he wants them to know that Judah, I will be with you. I will be with you in strength. I will be with you to help. I will be with you to uphold you. And in verses 12 through 26 then, he pulls back the curtain some more on who he is. Who he really is that is holding them. Who he really is that is there to strengthen them and hold them and to help them. Why? Well, to comfort them. To comfort them in the midst of what they're walking through. And to help them see that whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, we have nothing to fear. Because he, the great one, is always with us. What a comfort this prophecy must have been for this remnant as they, as they sat in chains in Babylon. And I pray by the grace of God that this would always also be a wonderful encouragement for each of us as well as we sit in our homes, as we sit in our cars, or wherever it is that you're listening to this. The reality that God is with us. So who is this God? Who is this King of glory? Who is this one that holds us by His grace and for His glory? What is He like? Well, there's four things that we discover about this great one in this chapter that I want to bring your attention, for your encouragement, for your strengthening, for your edification, and indeed for your, verse 1, comfort. Here's the first thing. first thing we learn about the one who holds us is the reality that He is the one who is greater than creation. Look with me at verse 12. Get your Bibles out. Let's look down together. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? I love the way right in this, right in this verse It's as if God pulls us into his great workshop. A workshop where he's been making something. There are measures, there are weights, there are things out in this workshop as we start to gather around in it. And what has he been making? Well, the entire universe. All of creation. And so we read, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This is what God has been making. So who amongst us has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know, with my role for Sovereign Grace, I have to travel a lot, as you know. And one of the things that I found to be true is there is a lot of water in the earth. I mean, whenever I go to LA, which takes about 15 hours to travel to, you take off from Sydney, and within about 30 seconds, you are over water. You then travel for about 15 and a half hours, and before you land in LA, which takes about a minute after you're back on land, you are the entirety of the trip over water. The waters of this earth are massive. They are vast in all their might. To give you a clue, there is actually 1,386 billion cubic kilometers of water in our earth. That's a lot. That means there are 1,386 billion trillion liters of water in the earth. 
Now that's so hard to get our head around, is it not? So here's what that means. What that means is if everybody in the world right now took 2.5 billion baths, all at exactly the same time, we would still not drain all the waters of the earth. They are vast. They are above and beyond what we can even comprehend. In our hand, in the hollow of our hand, which is just this small part of our hand, all we can hold is about a teaspoon of water. But what God wants to help us see here is the one who holds us, the one who holds us in his hand, he can hold all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Such is his majesty, such is his splendor, such is his greatness. The one who holds us can hold the very oceans of this earth in his hand. And then he says, who has marked off the heavens with a span? Span is from your thumb to the tip of your little finger. Who's marked that off? You know, the heavens, or at least the known heavens as we know it, they are so big that we can't use miles to measure them. You have to use light years. Otherwise, the number is just too big. And the way a light year works out is as follows. One beam of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. What that means is every second, you are listening to me, one beam of light travels seven times around the earth. It goes very, very fast and travels a lot, a lot, a lot of miles every second. Well, here's the reality. The known universe then, to go from one side of it to the other, one beam of light traveling at 186,000 186, miles per second, it would take one beam of light traveling that fast 93 billion years to get from one side to the other. It is massive. Our universe is absolutely colossal. And that is just the known universe. And the reason why it's often called the known universe and anything to do with science is because that's all we've been able to see with telescopes that have been made so far. It's probably far bigger than that. Just no one can see beyond what they can see. It's astounding. And God wants to help us see, listen, the one that's holding you, the one that's helping you and aiding you, he just marks it off with his thumb and his little finger. The one that holds you in his hand, marks it off in that same hand. He then says, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? Astounding. You think about all the mountain ranges of our earth. I mean, there are many. I remember the first time I ever went on a flight. I was 21 years old. I'd never been abroad before. Kind of made up for it since. But I was 21 years old and never been on a plane. And I went with my dear wife and actually her family and my family. And we went to Malta. And I bagsied the window seat because I'd always look forward to going on a plane. And so I sat by the window. Probably, I was 21, but I probably did an impression of like a six-year-old the entire journey. I was just glued to the window, looking out at all that was taking place. And I'll never forget, once we started to go over France, it started to get really cloudy. And that was really disappointing because you're like, I can't see anything anymore other than clouds. And then all of a sudden, you saw mountain peaks coming way above Clouds And I'm like, what in the world is that? And it was the French Alps. We were going over the French Alps. You know, the French Alps are nearly five kilometers high in places, and it felt like we were going to touch them at different points. They were so vast. Well, this verse helps us see that it is God alone 
that can weigh those things. Not just the Alps, but all the Himalayas, the Andes, all the mountain ranges of the earth. It is God alone who can weigh all those things. You know, one of the things I love about this verse is you get the idea of easy competence with it again and again and again. I remember when I was a kid, you know, and you'd be trying to get your Coke bottle open and you'd be trying like your best and you can never get it open. And then you'd give it to your dad and what would he do? He'd just go, or give you it back, and you're like, oh yeah, I probably loosened it for him or something, I don't know. You know, you just get this idea that with God, all these things are easy. Holding the hollow waters of the hollow in his hand, marking off the breadth of the heavens with his hand, carrying the weight of the earth on scales, it's easy competence for the Lord. My friends, what a comfort this must have been to Judah to know the one who holds you is the one who holds the earth in this way. And my friends, it should be a great comfort for us as well. Take a look out of your window and realize God made all of this. The next time you go to the sea, take a good look at it. And be aware that the one who holds that in his hand holds you in his hand. Take a good look at those mountain ranges online and be aware it is God alone who can weigh those. And he is the one weighing you and helping you and carrying you. And in verse 13 and 14, you get to experience the reality, and it is so important in particular for Judah to know, that God has made all these things in the wisdom and strength of his might alone. Look at those verses, 13 and 14. He says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God consult and made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? He's questioning us, saying, listen, who did I have to ask before I did all these things? And the point is no one. When God created these things, he needed nothing. All the ideas were his alone. All the genius was his alone. God himself imagined every tropical fish, every leaf in a rainforest, every snowflake that would fall from the sky. God alone imagined the function of gravity and each and every shape of the galaxies. God alone made everything in the wisdom and strength of his own might. You know, for Babylon... For the people of Babylon, particularly for the people of God as they sat in Babylon, for Babylonia, they believed in many gods, and they believed that the gods have to interact with each other. And so there's Marduk, the god of creation, and before he could make anything, he had to consult with A, the god of the all-wise. And so they would all chat to each other and discuss with each other before any of them could make anything. And then God sends this prophecy through his servant Isaiah to his people and makes it clear to them, not only that you shall have no other gods before me, but even more than that, those other gods don't even exist. Because when it came to creation, I did it all by myself. My friends, the one who holds us, The one who will keep us safe through COVID-19. The one who oversees all things. The one who hems us in both behind and before. He is the one greater than creation. What comfort that should bring, don't you think? What comfort that must have brought to these exiles as they were in chains in Babylon. And what comfort that should bring to us as well. He is the one who is greater than creation. But that's not all. Number two. 
He's also the one who is greater than the nations. I love this. Verse 15. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. I love that. I want you to imagine this afternoon you're washing the car. You fill up your bucket with water and on the way to your car across the yard, one single drop falls from your bucket. What are you going to do? Probably not a lot because it's just a drop, right? It's just no big deal. And what we are learning in these verses is that drop from a bucket is just how God sees all the standings of the nations compared to his greatness and his majesty and his worth. Whoa! What we are learning here is that if you stacked up Rome and Babylon and Egypt and Syria and China and Russia and the United States of America and Europe and Australia and you put it all together, it is still just a mere drop from a bucket compared to him. What a God we serve. What a vast God we serve. He then emphasizes this point in 21 through 24. Listen to what God says. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rules, the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What a comfort it must have been to Judah as they sit in chains in Babylon, in exile, in despair, to know that the God who is overseeing their lives is the God of all the nations, even Babylon. They had nothing to fear. You know, I don't know what your perspective is on government and how governments operate around the world, but here's what I do want you to know. All governments, even the greatest of them, are like grasshoppers compared to the Lord. His point isn't then just to help us see the difference. His point is to help us see we can trust him. Because he is the one that ultimately sits above it all. He's the one who sits above all kings and all queens and all prime ministers and all presidents. We can rest. Rest in him. How comforting that must have been for Babylon. And my friends, how comforting I trust that is for us. Our God is in control. Our king is still our king. And he is the one that is encircled in the heavenly realms, ultimately enthroned, still now, in the midst even of a global pandemic, we have one that sits above it all. And we go on to learn then that this one who sits above it all, this ultimate king, this supreme king and governor of all, Well, he's also the one who stands gloriously alone. And that's my third point. That he is the one who stands gloriously alone. You see, Isaiah has already touched on this in verses 13 and 14. But God clearly isn't done yet on this. 
And so this is what we see prophesied in verse 18. It says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with Him? You know, the Bible often describes God using metaphors. It helps us see what God is like. And so we learn that He is like a lion. He's like a fountain, a tower, a husband, a father, a soldier. There are lots of different references in the Bible that help us to understand and kind of get our hands around in our humanity who God is and what He's really like. But my friends, it's so important to understand in the midst of all that that quite simply, as it says in this verse, there is no one truly like our God. Because He is completely and utterly different. He is not some domesticated cat. He is above and beyond us in absolutely every way. He is the God of all creation. He is the genius at the bottom of it all. He's the one who stands supreme and above all governance for the entire world. And he does it all completely and utterly independently. He is the God who is independent and unchangeable and eternal and infinite and majestic. He alone is the God who is all-wise and all-truthful and all-knowing and all-present. He alone is the God who is all-good and all-loving and all-merciful and all-holy and all-righteous. There is no one like Him. You might find individuals similar in certain parts and certain facets, but when it comes to understanding God in all of His majesty, there is no one who is equal. There is no one like Him. In all the heavens and all the earth. Matthew Henry says it this way. He says the greatest and best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am who I am. But God says simply this. I am who I am. Oh, how true that is. He is supremely above and beyond us in every way. Everybody else has to say, I am something by the grace of God. But not God. He simply says, I am. I am who I am. A.W. Pink follows that up. He says, God is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, and peerless in his perfections. My friends, so he is. And this is the God who holds you. This is the God who promises that surely goodness and mercy will never let you go. This is the God who promises you, I will hem you in, both behind and before. This is the God who assures you that I will watch your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the God who assures you, listen, as I care for you and oversee you, I will never slumber nor sleep. This one who stands supremely and gloriously alone in his majesty, unique in his excellency, and peerless in his perfections. How good it is to know then that he is with us, don't you think? How good it is to know. For Judah, this must have been astounding news. To know that this one who holds them is the God of all creation. To know that this is the one who stands above all the nations. To know that this is the one who stands gloriously alone. Oh my, what comfort this must have brought to their heart. There's one more thing that God wants them to know. For even now, he's still not done. One more thing that I think he wants us to know. He's not done yet. And it's this, point four. That he is the one who is ever 
sustaining. Look with me at verse 25 and 26. It says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You know, as you know, I grew up in Spalding in Lincolnshire in England. As I said before, if you want to know what that's like, watch Lord of the Rings, the first one. See the Shire. Yeah, it's pretty much where I grew up. You know, Hobbiton was called Spalding when I was growing up. It's a small place. It's a country town. And the one thing about Spalding is completely a flat. You can't see any hills, uh, any mountains, nothing. It's just completely flat. And so it's often known as well as the land of the big sky. Because when something is completely flat, you just see an awful lot of sky all the time. And that was beautiful. In the daytime, you would just look up at the sky and you'd see clouds and so on and so forth. And one of the most beautiful things was sunset. You'd see all the different colors of the sky changing literally every few minutes as the sun begins to set. And my dad and, and I would often go down to the riverbank and just watch the sunset and you would hear the waters coming through the locks and you would look out on the sun and it was beautiful. And another thing we used to do then was go outside at night and just look up at the heavens and it's the land of the big sky. So you would see stars in there, thousands and thousands and thousands. It was amazing just to see the heavens. And growing up in the country, there isn't a ton of streetlights, so you can just see everything. It was incredible to experience that as a kid. And then when 10 years ago I moved to Australia, I did the same thing. I went outside to try and see into the heavens, and I could see the heavens, I could see the stars, but what sort of kind of knocked me off my feet a little bit is the stars are completely different here because we're in the southern hemisphere. So you can't see the northern star, you see the southern cross. It is a completely different set of stars. I was amazed. But the truth is, whether you live in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, we simply don't see the half. There are 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And there are at least 125 billion other galaxies that we know of so far. The heavenly realms are staggering. We only see such a small part. And yet in verse 26 we read that God created all of these. Talking about the stars. God created all of these. He called them each by name. And by his power he now sustains them all so that not one is missing. It's amazing. Go outside tonight and look up to the heavens. And I want you to realize God made all of these. And he named all of these. You know, I had the privilege of naming three children. Even that was a real struggle and stretch. How do you think of three names? You know, this is hard. God has named all the stars of the heaven. And he sustains them and keeps them and upholds them so that not one is missing. Wow! My friends, here's what I want you to realize and treasure in your hearts this morning. I want you to realize and treasure that the one who called the stars and who sustains them and now upholds them to ensure that not one is missing is also the one who sustains you and upholds you 
And I want to encourage you, he does it with even greater vigilance and care for you, even than the stars. How do I know? Well, here's how I know. Because he didn't send his son for the stars. He sent his son for you. And he sent his son for me. However great the heavenly realms may be, and I want to encourage you to step outside tonight and behold your God in the heavenly realms. But as you behold your God in the heavenly realms, realize he loves you more than even they. Because he sent his son, not for them. He sent his son for you. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Oh my goodness. At the realness of when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Why? For you. His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that anyone who believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. This is his son. This is his son who, when he came to the earth, the heavens ripped open and God himself said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He loves his son with a perfect love that we can never even quietly get our hands around in this state. And yet he so loved you and he so loved me That when the fullness of time had come, a time that he even talks about in Isaiah 40 verse 10, when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son. A new king. A king that would give his life away as a ransom for many, including you. My friends, the one who holds you and the one who cares for you and the one who stains you, sustains you, loves you enough to send his son for you. We have nothing to fear. If he loves us enough to send his son for us, how will he not give us all good things as well? What intimate care. What more can he possibly do to prove to you and I of his passionate and particular and specific love for us? My friends, if you're streaming in online today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you. He loves you too. And in all honesty, you may have streamed in because you're looking on at this coronavirus and looking on at all that's taking place and wondering what's going on. Well, I want to encourage you. You have a problem far greater than COVID-19. And that's your sin and the consequences of your sin. The greatest problem we have is that in our sin we're cut off from God. We were made for God. We were made to be with God. We were made to spend time with the Lord. And yet we rejected Him. We exchanged the Creator for the created. We wanted to run off and do our own thing and not live for Him. That's why there's so much disaster in the world. That's why it's so difficult all the time. And God could have left us in that circumstance. We rejected Him, not the other way around. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anybody who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Listen, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible is clear. You will be saved. 
In that moment, you will know what it's like to be forgiven of your sin. You will know what it is to be adopted into the family of God. You will know what it is to know you have a Father protecting you and that heaven will be your home. So if you're streaming in and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. Just get to your knees after this this sermon finishes and just say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? I want to put my faith in you as my Lord and Savior. And save you, he will. He's a good and gracious king. My friends, if you've already done that, if you are a believer, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. Whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, we have nothing to fear. Because he, the great one, is always with us. What a comfort that would have been for the people of God as they sat in chains in Babylon. And I pray that that is a wonderful comfort to each one of us as well. For we do not know the future, but we do know the one who holds the future. He's the one who is above all of creation. He's the one who is above all nations. He's the one who stands gloriously alone, and he is the one who is ever-sustaining. So my friends, lift your eyes to the hills. From where does our help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's got this. He's got you. So be comforted. Let's pray. Lord, you astound us with who you really are. And Lord, as we consider the heavens and we consider the stars and we consider creation and the earth, we are staggered staggered that you would be mindful of us. And yet you're not just mindful of us. You know our names. You know our names. You know our frames. You know our thoughts. You know our circumstances. Lord, we can trust in the one who called the stars into place and named them and sustains them so that not one is missing. And Lord, that one is you. Lord, I thank you that you sent your son for us. I thank you that you took care of our greatest need. You dealt with our sin in full so that we may be reconciled to you. And Lord, I thank you that now as we walk through trial, sometimes multiple trials in this season, I thank you that you will sustain us. You are a good, good king. Thank you for your comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.